Welcome to the Janine Boland Show, where we share tips from around the globe as we guide practical people with their finances using money tips, increase their incomes through side businesses, and maintain their sanity by staying in their creative zone. Janine Bolin here and welcome to today's show where we bring you quality content on saving your time, saving your money, and how about staying sane during these very continually changing phases of life. What do you think? The Janine Bolin Show is a syndicated program of four podcast shows that were combined in October of 2021. Three-Minute Money Tips, The Thriving Solopreneur, The Writer's Hour Creative Conversations, and The Practical Mystic Show were all programs that were running simultaneously in 2000, from 2017 to 2021. We've now produced over 300 episodes. We've interviewed over 217 guests. And today we will be spotlighting one of the authors that is contributing to our 99 author project, Mr. Paul Hood. Now, Paul is a highly sought after speaker and consultant due to his innate ability to see through complexities and be able to explain things that are difficult <laughs> and often boring subjects. To, and he makes them understandable as well as entertaining. I mean, that's not easy to do, folks. He minces no words when he's doing this. He has a very direct approach. And one of the things that's really cool is Paul has been a father, a husband, a lawyer, a trustee, a director, a president, a trust protector, a director of planned giving, an expert witness, agent, we're going to come back to that, a professor, a judge, a juror, and a defendant. So he takes all of these myriad of roles and the crazy experiences that he has had to guide others. Welcome to the show, Paul. It's great to have you. I'm glad to be here, Janine. It's wonderful to be with you. Yeah, I, I totally love when I get an opportunity to talk to authors, because especially when they're in the financial industry, because I taught so much, like for 30 years, I taught finances. And one of the things I used to talk to people about were certain money tips. And I tell my listeners, look, you know, we will cover some sort of a money tip in the show. And so the one that is my favorite story to tell is that I sat down and it took me an hour, but I sat down and I figured out with math how much money using a spatula in the kitchen, because I did a lot of cooking from scratch. When you have four children and you're living on one income, let me tell you, you, <laughs> you learn to really stretch a dollar. And uh, I found out that it saved us $273 a year to use a $1 spatula to clean out everything from jelly jars to whatever, any, anything I used. I was dumbfounded how something so little could save and yield us so much money. So I had asked you earlier, hey, do you have one of those kind of money stories you can tell us? And you were like, I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to tell you on the air. So go ahead and share. <laughs> A money tip that I often um, pass along to people at various stages of life, whether they're students going to college or to grad school or law school or medical school or others, is the following. It is much easier to borrow money than it is to pay it back. And people look at you like, what? And I said, yes, it is easier to get a lender to give you money. It is harder to pay that loan back with interest at the stated rate with after-tax dollars. It will cost you 40 to 50% more, plus the interest, to get that back. I said, so therefore, when you borrow money, remember that it's easier to 
get it than it is to give it back. And remember that on the front end before, so you don't borrow too much or you don't borrow for the wrong reason. And that is true wisdom. But it's so funny. Have you ever noticed it when you're talking about money and you'll, you'll come out with some of these sayings and people are like, yeah, I've heard that before, whatever, give me something new. I actually had a Wall Street Journal um, reporter say to me, look, our people are very savvy. They need something new. Do you have anything new? And I thought to myself, there is nothing new when it comes to money and how to save it and live debt free. You know, you've got to start with that first. So thank you for sharing what I know to be the basics of, <laughs> and to say it in such a concise way. Well, you know, it's, 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 you know, there's nothing you know, there, there's no sex appeal to the basics. Okay, <laughs> it's true. But, but, but what, 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 but what it does actually have some sex appeal is the fact that if you follow the basics, you will have money. And if you don't, if you fall for the shiny objects, the newfangled ideas, um, you often end up broke. And, uh, you know, we're seeing this in the cryptocurrency market today. Um, and and you're, you're seeing it in a number of areas where people come up with what they think are newfangled ways to make money when the old ways are the only ways. You know, there are no shortcuts to quality. I mean, there's a, a whole list of, of, of topics that are timeless and, 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 and adages that are timeless that, that just you know, yeah, there's, yeah, there's no, there's no secret to it other than the fact that this is what you got to do. And if you fall for something new, uh, you, it might not work and usually doesn't work. Yep. And we see a lot of that happening in so many different areas of our lives. But I, I'd love to t have you talk to us about your book though. And you are an author, you have multiple books, you've, you've written several and I, I forget how many, can you tell me how many it is now? Nine. Yeah, I knew it was you were almost a double digit author, as my kids like to say when you cross over into 10 or more. Um, but you wrote a book that was ex exceptional to me uh, for what I needed in my life, and that was Yours, Mine, and Ours. Do you mind talking to us a little bit about why you wrote that book? Yes. Um, when I was a practicing tax and estate planning lawyer, the most consistently challenging client was the client in the second, third, or more marriages. I had two clients, Janine, actually married eight times in their lives. Um, I actually perfected my prenuptial agreement because uh, I drafted four for one of them uh, who kept marrying younger women. Uh, oh, no. The, the eighth and burying spouse he married when he was 82. And she was but she was but 26. Um, <laughs> More and the other one, other one married eight times and died at 64, uh, believe it or not. Uh, that's a lot of marrying to get in before age 64. Um, but uh, I did four, no, three prenups for him. I'm sorry. But um, um, the bottom line is that in estate planning, when you have a single relationship couple that have that and they share the children or other descendants, the planning is very, very different than when you have people who have so-called blended or step families. And in fact, techniques that work great for single relationship couples 
often are disasters for the blended family couple. And um, we have more of those now, right? I mean, that was something you and I were talking about. It's like, it's now common. It is now the, the majority to have blended families rather than single married uh, couples, especially in the financial industry at this stage of the game. Well, believe shocked. it or not, well, believe it or not, Janine, you, you're right. And the, the United States census, beginning in the 2010 census, the blended family is now the most common form of family relationship. That was repeated in the 2020 census. And uh, so therefore, Ozzy and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver have given oh way have given way to the Brady Bunch. Yeah, we definitely are the Brady Bunch now. <laughs> Thank you very much. And for those of you who don't understand what we're saying, don't worry about it. We're now moving on to the to the book, book part of the chapter. And that is one of the things I love about authors is I like them to come out and strut their stuff a little bit and what they know. But a lot of you are listening to this 99 author project because you want to know how to market your book better. And so what I do is I brought on almost 100 authors and said, hey, tell us about what works, what doesn't work, and why you did things the way you did. And so one of the things that I've come to find out with a lot of folks that are in the nonfiction industry is they don't write under a pen name. They choose to write under their own name. But Paul, you have quite a story about your name because on your book cover, it says L and then a period and then Paul Hood. And so tell us a little bit about L. <laughs> L stands for Leonard, L-E-O-N-A-R-D. And in my dad's family, Leonard is a name that has been frequently given, but never used. My paternal grandfather's name was Leonard Richard, went by Richard. He named my father, his oldest son, Leonard Paul, called him Paul. I am the oldest of three boys born within 35 months of each other. Yes, my mother's and my mother and father didn't hire babysitters. They hired referees. <laughs> but but when I was born, I was Paul um, and uh, little Paul. Uh, and of course, on the Cajun side of my family, my my maternal uh, grandmother uh, and her family are Cajun. In fact, my maternal great-grandmother didn't speak English. She spoke only Cajun French. And when we did something as kids that she didn't like, which was frequent, she would roll her eyes and say, Anglaise, because English, because the Cajun people, of course, hate the English, because in 1760, when France ceded Canada to Great Britain after losing the French and Indian War, the British troops went up to my people in, in Acadia in Canada and says, you now need to swear allegiance to the King of England. They said, no, 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 we're gonna swear at the King of, at the King of England. <laughs> well, they put my people on boats and they shipped them down out of the, the Great Lakes, down the Atlantic seaboard. And a lot of them landed in Virginia and then made the trek across down to Southwest Louisiana. So in Cajun land, of course, the word petite is in translated in French is is little, uh, but Cajun French. I was known as T Paul because T is short for petite, so gotcha. I was T Paul. And when my son was born, who's Paul the third, I said, "Let's name him something else." LP Trey Trip. The women outvoted me. He was another Paul. Although my dad 
was a conscientious objector and never called him Paul, always called him Trip or Trey, as long <laughs> as he lived. <laughs> I knew I knew that you'd have a story. And that's one of the things I love about you is, is your storytelling. And you and I both have migration story, forced migration stories in our history and in our background. So thank you for sharing a little bit of yours. But we're going to get back to marketing that book. And one of the things that really helps when it comes to marketing a book is your ability to do verbal storytelling as well as your written storytelling. So we understand why you wrote under the name that you do. But did you have any kind of a marketing background before you started writing your book? No. No, I didn't think so. I knew it was pretty much financial and you didn't have marketing uh, expert anywhere in the labels of your introduction. Although right. you said you were an agent. Now I was like, were you secret agent man? You know, I had that song going on in my head. So well, what did agent, you mean by agent? Agent, uh, actually uh, agent for entities, legal, uh, the legal agent for service of process. I was an agent under powers of attorney, otherwise known as agent and attorney. In fact, okay, um, so I just I wanted to make sure in, in two different capacities, and actually a third agent, a third form of agent, because I was an agent for some professional sports players. So, gotcha. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to uh, make sure because when you, somebody says they're an agent. Um, I was in a military family, so it has a very different connotation. I'm like, ooh, what kind of agent? Right, right. <laughs> okay. So, hey, talk to us a little bit about what was the most surprising thing that you ran across with the book marketing process and how you published your book? Well, the most surprising thing I learned, Janine, when I published my first national book on business valuation with Wiley and Sons in 2010 was that publishers do no book marketing. You know, I, being a naive, you know, guy and, you know, sort of a subject matter expert, wonk, uh, just assumed that the people putting the book together would actually have a plan to sell it. But that's not true. Um, and that was my experience. So uh, that was the biggest thing that surprised me. Uh, no marketing. Zero no marketing, marketing, zero okay. marketing. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize there was a sea change in the publishing industry from 1999 to 2000. And that's when vanity publishing came out. But of course, Hollywood doesn't help us authors, right? It keeps us right. in that naivete because, you know, they, they still make it sound like, oh, this is my publisher. Like the publisher's done a lot of the marketing for you. It's, it's funny. So say you would, what would you change if you started marketing your books today? Like say you were a fresh debut author, what are some of the things that you would change or do that you didn't know about before? Well, the first thing I would do is A, not rely on the publisher and B, <laughs> hire, you know, learn and hire some experts who could help me actually market the book. Uh, because, um, you know, I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, I've learned something over the years about it. But, um, you know, the fat, the learning curve is short and greatest by, and, and you don't have to go, you know, because you can spend more money on marketing than, than, than you can make in book revenues. Um, but if you strategically and judiciously hire uh, experts at various levels along the way, uh, you can really enhance your book sales. Wonderful. And so tell us uh, what worked best for you when it came to selling your books? What were some of the things that were successes for you? Well, appearing at, at conferences uh, with boxes of books drop shipped on site 
um, when people heard you speak, you know, they wanted to buy your book. So immediately, and being set up to sell the book immediately, uh, and obviously technology today makes that very easy. Uh, in, the, in the beginning, it, it could be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, you were taking written checks from people. But, um, uh, but the bottom line is, is that apparent personal appearances, uh, some readings at bookstores, but not very much. Uh, my old friend, uh, the late Dan Pointer, who was one of the self-publishing gurus of this country, I got to know Dan pretty well. And Dan used to say bookstores are lousy places to sell books. And he was right. Uh, Dan sold most of his books on uh, uh, parasailing and, and, and parachuting at parachute shops, believe it or not. Um, so, um, uh, but conferences and today with COVID, um, I, I do a lot of podcast uh, appearances that help move the needle on, on book sales. I, I agree that I wrote a book on it, actually, as you know. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. A very good book, by the way. Yeah, thank you. I'll pay you your 20 bucks later. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's one of those things, right? Is that you, you have to shift with the time. So uh, this is always my favorite question to ask fellow authors. And that is, what is your story of epic failure when it came to marketing your book? We all have that story. I have a $6,000 story of epic failure of where like I invested $6,000 in something and it was abysmal. And so, you know, don't be shy. Tell us uh, what your epic failure was in your marketing of your book. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story and name names. <laughs> um, uh, in the, the business valuation book that Wiley published was actually written more for tax practitioners and lawyers and not so much business valuation people. Wiley marketed the book to the extent they did at all to business valuation professionals. And it had very little about business valuation there. So the book never sold. So we actually just recently got a reversion of the copyright and we're putting out a second edition of that book uh, with a different publisher now. <laughs> um, but reliance on the publisher to pick the market. They didn't even pick the right market for the book, which virtually guaranteed its failure from a sales standpoint. If you're selling it to the wrong, the people who don't want it, you know, <laughs> why do that? You know, and I thought I assumed that they knew more than they than they than they did. So, and I wish I wish I could say you're one of the few authors that that has happened to, but I can't. When when people read this book that we're building slowly through these podcasts, um, it, it, they're gonna they're gonna see story after story of where uh, they definitely did struggle. Authors definitely did struggle with that. So for our debut authors that are getting out there, don't make these mistakes. Make different ones. Make different mistakes. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. So what story do you like to tell about yourself that gets the most laughs from your target market? There are three. The first is when I'm on a podcast that has video, I tell people I have a face for radio. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's the, second, the second thing is I often, well, I almost always introduce myself as a recovering tax lawyer. Um, and then often on airplanes, when someone sits next to me and then turn, because I never talk to anybody I sit next to on an airplane. I don't know about you, but 
me, I just don't. I have my earpiece. I'm, I'm listening to music. But sometimes people will ask me, hey, what do you do? And as an estate planner, I told, used to tell people, I practice psychotherapy without a license. Because <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. Yes, you and, then, and beauticians. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, do, do, doing, doing uh, a hair therapy, if you will. But uh, the third thing is a former law uh, partner of mine used to refer to me as the repositor of the bizarre and arcane. <laughs> because in addition to my professional interests, in the fall, I am teaching the first semester of a three-semester course on the history of the popes and the papacy. I'm also teaching in the same semester a three-week short course on the history of the platters and the drifters, two music groups from the 1950s and 60s. Um, so you never know with me. You know, I was a pitching coach for 25 years. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm all over the board. So he called me the repositor of the bizarre and arcane. I think it's lovely. I think that's <laughs> just lovely uh, because authors are not single dimensional. You know, that's one of the things, you know, most human beings I've run into are multidimensional. Okay. And what's really sad is when it comes to marketing a book or whatever is that if you're going to work with the artificial intelligence on social media and the search engines and stuff, you're almost forced into such a tight niche that until people get your newsletter or something, they might not know about all these other things that you are very good at doing, you know, that you have a life outside of just the one book or the nine books that you wrote. So tell us a little bit about what the biggest change is in yourself since you started marketing your own books. Well. Um... Of course, it was it, it was it was a eating a big piece of humble pie, and uh, you know I had to realize that I'm a lousy I'm a lousy self promoter. Okay, uh, part of it is you know the guilt that was instilled in me having been raised, and that was how you know when you know people come up as a kid, I was raised as a Southern gentleman, pursuant to and have to follow the code the unwritten code of the Southern gentleman, which is you don't call attention to yourself, which of course is okay in, in personal settings, but when you're trying to sell a book, um, it, it's, it causes cognitive dissonance, okay? Because <laughs> right. you become, you're like, this is something I'm, I was taught not to do. <laughs> right. Um, but, but here I've got to do it. And, and, it, and it, never, it never feels right, Janine. It just, I wish I could get to a comfort point with it, but I've never gotten there. Yep. No, I, I, I totally understand. I was raised under very similar situations. Uh, with the military background I had and training, it was staying in stealth mode. You know, you didn't make noise, you didn't make waves. And it is something that I still struggle with. And people laugh because they're, they're like, Janine, you're so extroverted. You're outgoing. You tell stories. And I'm like, yeah, it took work. And Paul, it, you're saying the same thing. It took work to get to that point where we could be comfortable just sharing stories, you know, with, with other people. But, um, well, knowing what you know, how about you give us your top five tips on what you would tell a debut author about selling their books, if you don't mind? If you, number one, if you want to any, anybody to buy your book, you got to market it yourself. 
publishers don't market books. Two, work with the best publishing partners and resist signing with the first publisher who offers you a contract. Um, I made that mistake. Um, I won't name the publisher. Um, <laughs> I will be kind this time. Although you're already, I really, you're although showing I that really, Southern. Yeah, I, I really shouldn't, but I, I'm going to be. <laughs> um, don't give a second book to the publisher with whom you're working before the publisher gets the first book out. Because I made that mistake. And then they double-crossed me and only put out the electronic version of the second book. And I ultimately had to uh, 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 buy my copyrights to both books back. Um, even though the royalties for five years were zero, and you know the books go for three to five times annual gross royalties, so I should have paid zero for my copyright. I gave them $1,500 so they'd go away so I'd get my copyrights back. Uh, number four, if the publisher isn't holding up their end of the bargain, don't be bashful about saying, I want my copyright back. You know, go get it. And if you got to pay, you got to pay. And number five, where I am today, self-publishing is the way to go. If you've got the right self-publishing partner. And I have to tell you, I love mine. It's Kathy Mace at Bublish. And uh, they've put out my last two books. They are technically self-published, but she has a network of independent contractors that do every aspect, cover design, um, uh, copy editing, uh, uh, developmental editing, proofreading, the whole thing. Those books are the best looking books. And, and you know, like I said, I've put, I put out books with Wiley you know, a uh, 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 national underwriter, American Lawyer Media. Um, uh, but those two books that are self-published books, okay? You think, eh, low quality stuff, best looking books I've ever put out. So, uh, but it's, but once again, you got to pick the right, you got to pick the right uh, helper. Uh, and I did. So I've got three and three more books in, in the works uh, with Bublish right now. And, and then what is the primary thing that you think has been the biggest reward for you at becoming an author? The biggest reward for me would probably be um, when the book actually goes live for sale, you know, because, you know, you went through all that, you know, trouble writing the book and then the editorial process and then and then the book assembly process and, you know, the galley reviews and, you know, this and that when, but, but all that is worth it when you click on and all of a sudden your books for sale on Amazon or on Barnes and Noble. It, it, it's like, Hey, <laughs> my book's for sale now, you know, all that hard work for that one moment, you'd say, is it worth it? And the answer is yes, it is. And that's why I keep doing it. So good for you. I'm glad that you do uh, because you have nine books out. I know you're working on another one. And I just know that all that uh, information that you have that is arcane and bizarre <laughs> definitely does need to come out for us. Do you have any last comments that you wanted to make before we go today? I, I think that um, uh, 
to be a writer, to be a successful author requires two things. It requires passion and discipline. If you have passion but lack discipline, your book never gets put down on a computer or on paper. On the other hand, if you have discipline but no passion, your subject is never compelling enough to either write or if you do write it, it'll be painful and nobody will read it. So when I tell people who say, gosh, you've written nine books, I could never write a book, it's too big of a project, I say, stop. Commit yourself to, to writing down, to writing 300 words a day, which is one page, okay? If you write 300 words a day for a year, you got a 365 page book and there you did it. You did it in three foot tosses as opposed to trying to make a, a 20 foot toss you know, that ring toss from 20 feet to hell of a lot harder than it is when you're standing three feet away, especially when you're six, five, like I am, you know, <laughs> practically could put the damn thing on the, on the ring. So that's, that's, that's my tip. It, 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 it's not rocket science to write a book and it's not impossible to write a book, but it takes discipline and passion and you have to have both. So discipline and passion. Well, that's it. Paul has answered our questions and then we got more information in store for you. Uh, if you want to check out his latest work, please go and find his website. So where does somebody connect with you, Paul? Uh, www.paulhoodservices.com. Paul and I have, Hood I have Services. And I have, I have articles there, the links to uh, many of the, of the latest articles that I've written the last, the last you know, eight or 10 years. I have some white papers, there are links to buy the books uh, and some other things, and my blog. So uh, there you have it. Authors are very good at having a lot of free stuff on their website. So just go dig around at the author website, which is paulhoodservices.com. And so there you have it. Today, we had Paul Hood as our spotlighted author. If you have an author or you know of an author that you would like to, us to spotlight, please visit our website, authorpodcasting.com, where you will find the 99 Author Project listed. We talk to all authors from all walks of life as we build out our book number 12, which is advice from authors to authors in 2023 is when that will go out. And this is Janine Boland signing off with you today and all of us here at The Eight Gates that produces The Janine Boland Show. We wish you a wonderful week and we encourage you to get your message, your story, or your knowledge out into the world and make it a better place, just like these authors that we're interviewing this year. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep sharing what you know with others, keep shining that light that is you, and don't forget to go out today and do something for yourself that's just plain fun. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Janine Boland Show. Be sure to subscribe to our show notes by going to the JanineBolinShow.com where you'll find additional resources as well as the opportunity to sign up to receive our program in your email each week. Be sure to visit our sponsor at the 8gates.com.